Episode 15, Adam. Are you ready? I'm so glad to be here with you today. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here with me. But I did want to ask you, um, do you remember recently Ava telling you any funny stories that start kind of in the middle? Have you ever noticed how kids tell stories that start in the middle of a sentence that you feel like should have a beginning? Like the other day, my daughter came into my room and jumped on the bed and was like, Dad, we have bones in our arm. And I was like, <laughs> OK, I, I realized that she was like, no, and we have bones in our wrist and in our back and in, even in our legs. And I was like, yeah, she's like, but we need to eat food. I was like, good point. Good mm-hmm. point. We do mm-hmm. need to eat food. She's like, because we need energy to play. And I was like, yeah, I mean, all very good points that you're making right now. <laughs> and then she's like, so can we go play? And I'm like, we have to make breakfast. We just talked about this. And she yeah. was like, all right, you're right. And I just feel like every kid's story starting in the middle is the most adorable. But yet while we're talking, I'm trying to figure out where this is going. Have you had that recently? I, I kind of have. I, you know, what's funny is I have an adult friend who does that. <laughs> Like I answer the phone and she just starts. She it's it's almost like somebody else hung up on her. Yeah. And she called me and just kept the story going. <laughs> so I'll answer the phone and she'll be like, "Yeah." And that's why I'm never talking to Dave again. And I'm like, "Okay." Uh, <laughs> How are you? And then we we go for a while and then she's like, "I gotta go." And I'm sure she calls somebody else and she's yeah. like, "And that's the problem with Christmas." And you're like, "All right, I don't understand what's happening." Yeah, I don't understand what's happening here. That's I haven't met an adult like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my daughter kind of did that uh, two nights ago. She woke up in the middle of the night and was pissed, and she was like sitting in a corner in the room and acting like she was going to sleep there. And then out of nowhere, she goes, "We really need to build a fort downstairs again." Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And she goes, you know, like when we do, oh, actually, dad, we should put couch cushions on the floor and make a bed down there. And I'm like, you were crying four minutes ago. It's three in the morning, but something yeah. in her head clicked to that part of the story. Oh, dude, I feel like you can get a kid out of any like tantrum if you offer to build a fort with them. Because my daughter's <laughs> recently been really into forts. We build yeah. forts all over this house. Yeah. So she's really into tantrums too, then. Oh, for sure. Yeah. She's pretty into those. <laughs> You're like, there's a reason you discovered that. You didn't you, you didn't just stumble no. upon that. Well, actually, I think it was one of my ideas one of the nights when she just would refuse to like go lay down in her bedroom. And I was like, but what if we build a fort? And she's like, You got me there. And then yeah. she rolled into the bedroom and we built a pretty awesome fort. And That's still awesome. took two hours to put her to bed. So it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's kind of like a guess and check situation. Like we're not all the way there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. I wish we had. Yeah, wish I had another way. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, uh, NyQuil. Yeah, I'm I'm about three s- steps away from there. I haven't gotten a NyQuil yet. Jameson. Jameson. Okay, I'm two <laughs> steps away from Jameson. <laughs> the Jameson's, the Jameson's for you, not her. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't want to promote giving Jameson to four-year-olds, but I've reached <laughs> my limit at some point. Yeah, if, you, if you're passed out, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we get into the intro, intro of the episode? I would love to. All right, let's do it. Uh, 
Today we have Ben Vernon on the podcast, Ryan. We do have Ben Vernon. Ben Vernon is a San Diego City fire to firefighter who was attacked on a routine medical call in downtown San Diego and now travels around the world actually and shares his experience with what led up to that incident and everything he dealt with after. Yes, he is a huge, um, I don't want to use the word fan of... Proponent. Proponent? Yeah. He cares a lot about mental health education and talks a lot about how we don't, in general, as humans, know enough about mental health. And especially as a firefighter and someone who sees traumatic things every single day needs to know how to handle it. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that his introduction into the world of PTSD was one that surprised him because I think even he had preconceived ideas about what people with PTSD look like and deal with. And it was really eye-opening for him, I think, to move through that journey and figure out what figure out what and how to get better. Yeah. So listening today, you will get to hear the story of, of him being attacked uh, and almost killed. Yeah. You will get to hear his thoughts on therapy and EMDR. And also you will get to laugh because Ben was very funny and it felt like chatting with an old friend. He's a good, he's a good guy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the best things about talking to any firefighter is for the most part, they can always see the humor in any situation. So even yeah. he was able to find some find some funny in the middle of his story, and which is something that uh, actually, if you ever hear him speak, uh, he brings into his appearances. So if I you think- want to go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think you might be the only firefighter that doesn't do that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, I don't know how to take that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ben Vernon mostly speaks to other fire departments. Yeah, he does. He speaks to other fire departments, just trying to bring awareness about PTSD and mental health. Uh, If you'd like to schedule or reach out to Ben Vernon, you can go to his website. It's benvernon.com. And there's more information there on how to reach out to him. Otherwise, listen up and enjoy the episode. Just first and foremost, thank you for for agreeing to do it, man. I'm really excited. Oh, these are fun. So yeah. I, I like these. Yeah. Um, just so you know, I'm not wearing pants. because All right. I was hoping you weren't wearing pants. <laughs> Doing these, you're just like. Yeah. <laughs> put on a shirt oh, oh that's it yeah <laughs> that's, we normally save that till the second half of the podcast yeah um, <laughs> yeah just take it off man. uh so welcome to raising dad strip uh with yeah. ben vernon <laughs> uh, uh, so, so what sort of <laughs> yeah go for uh, it so what have you uh what have you been doing lately first off like how what have your last speaking engagements been like um so I, I did one last week for Michigan via StreamView or StreamYard, excuse me, okay. um, so Michigan. And then before that, uh, Norway. 
so I, I do public speaking. I, I was traveling two to three times a month, and now I'm doing probably one to two Zooms or stream yards um, a month. Um, so I'm back to speaking in public. I'll be in New Jersey next month, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, and then I have an engagement in San Diego that the funnel, right? I, I was every time you speak, I've learned that there are people at those conferences who are there just to poach speakers. Mm-hmm. So every time I speak, I get invited to speak somewhere else. And so um, I was very busy in 2019 and then all of that kind of crashed in 2020. So, yeah. um, I mean, I'm still a full-time firefighter. I work a lot of hours. We're very shorthanded. So I end up working way more than I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on my days off, uh, working on mental health stuff and trying to, I do a lot of teaching and teach a lot of classes for this type of thing. So, wow. So yeah, Ryan said he's been very uh, short. Yeah. Lately. It is brutal. I, yeah. Everyone's dealing with the same thing. I feel like we are. And that yeah. helps, you know, that helps deal with it. But uh, yeah. yeah, we cannot hire and train enough. We can't train fast enough to mm-hmm. replace our losses. So. Which is crazy. Cause I'm sure you think about when you first got hired or when I got hired, how, how stiff the competition was to getting hired. And now it's like, please, somebody have a pulse, get in here (laughs) (laughs) to work here. You're not qualified. That's all right. We 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 just need somebody in that seat. (laughs) Oh, you're a felon. That's all right. Get in here. Well, for our, for our listeners who don't know, I mean, I would love for you to share a, a short version of your, your transition from, uh, I think I, I forget the phrasing you, you use about, yourself beforehand but uh pompous might have been one of the words you used (laughs) that's a good word uh egotistical (laughs) full of myself um yeah so i I am embarrassed to say you know i was a uh a young firefighter i came on the job i wanted to be the best that i could be i wanted to be better than everybody else and so i worked really hard to join special teams i took every available class and i just I, I didn't understand mental health at all. I didn't understand how any of it worked. Um, and so I'm just a little embarrassed. You know, if people were struggling, I would have been a firefighter that would have told a fellow firefighter that they needed to suck it up buttercup or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. if they were struggling, then maybe they weren't right for this job. I mean, I would have been that guy that just wasn't a good listener or a advocate. And then I was almost murdered in 2015. I was attacked by a, a bystander uh, while we were on a routine call and I almost got murdered. I got stabbed a bunch of times, which I have on video and we can watch the video. It's fun to watch. Um, (laughs) And it, I, it, it set me back. It knocked me on my ass and I struggled with PTSD and I realized how very little, not only, I think as men were, were trained, you know, what is appropriate behavior, you know, um, to tough it up. I mean, I think we learned that, from very little ages to not cry, to, uh, you know, be tough. Um, and, and so, you know, I didn't really know how to deal with my PTSD and I ended up having to get really good therapy, which again, I think as, as young kids, you know, you're taught, uh, not to be mentally weak and therapy is for people who are mentally weak. And what's funny, you know, you, you had sent me a thing on just my relationship with my own father uh, I had a great relationship with him and not once did he ever say that. And so I don't know where I got that from. I don't know where that came from. Um, yeah. Maybe the bravado in the fire department. Yeah, maybe I, but I think I had that before I got on the job and I just don't know where I learned that behavior of, you know, being tougher than everybody else. 
Um, you know, there's something for getting a scrape on your knee and dusting yourself off and getting back after it. But, um, you know, being mentally tough, I think is, is a lot. I, my understanding now is a lot different than what it was before. And so I've, I've, I've learned a ton. And what I've also learned is that the fire department, and I, you could say this in general about most, uh, occupations, but in the fire service, we don't get a lot of training in mental health and we really should because it's definitely something that's constantly attacked by our job. So I've become an advocate, a teacher, I lecture and travel all over and just try to share what I've learned about mental health with other first responders. That's been my goal and my audience. I, I think I could probably take my message to the more general public, but I, I care about my first responder friends and family. And so I want them to know about this. So that's been my goal. So, yeah. When, uh, when did you first know that you wanted to become a firefighter? Uh, 2003, I had graduated college. I was working on a dead end job. I hated, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Um, so on the weekends, uh, I was doing extreme sports, rock climbing, skydiving, scuba diving, anything I could to just feel fun and, and danger and, um, I ran into a college buddy of mine who was working to become a firefighter and he was telling me all about the life. And I remember just, I felt like the stars kind of aligned and I was like, that's it. That's the job for me. Like, Oh my God, I found it. Um, and it was just easy after that, right? Just all of the necessary steps and the education and the training was just fun because I, I knew it was a job that I loved and wanted to do. So 2003 is when I set out to become a firefighter and I was hired in San Diego by 2006. So it took me three years of, uh, doing everything I could to get ready to become a firefighter. So when, when did, uh, yeah. when did you end up working downtown? Like when did you end up at your station? Cause I know you were there for a really long time. And for people who don't know the call volume at your station is incredibly high. It's the fourth highest in the nation. Uh, in wow. four, I started there in 2012 and I got hurt in 2015. Um, the mistake I made is I kept working there for a year after my injury Yeah, because I, again, I didn't want the guy who attacked me, who gave me PTSD. I didn't want him to dictate my career. And I was very happy there before I got hurt. And so I, I tried to stick it out for another year. So I spent four years down there, but it was a mistake. I, it was, hard, even with really good therapy and really good treatment um, and kind of recovering from PTSD, being back at that station with the people, you know, there's a lot of homeless, but in that area, they're very violent. And so they're, we get into a lot of scraps with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so doing that for a year after my injury was just, uh, it was rough. So yeah, probably a bad move. <laughs> it was a bad move. I, yeah. In hindsight, you know, I didn't let that guy dictate my career. And then I was just miserable for a year afterwards so yeah i i hear a lot of or, or i think it's super common to hear about ptsd with people who come back from deployments yeah. um, but i don't think you hear a lot about ptsd from from other th other things that happen um so how would you for somebody that doesn't suffer from ptsd how would you help them to to feel that or to be able to empathize with with that feeling wow that's a great question um I'll be honest, I didn't accept my my diagnosis right away because I always associated with military. Um, and it it took a lot of convincing by the therapists and the doctors to to just tell me, hey, man, you know, this is legit. They showed me all the signs and symptoms. Um, 
what what I can describe for PTSD for people that don't understand your brain, you're not in control of your emotions. Uh, outside triggers dictate how you behave. Um, and so if I could, so it's hard to describe, but you know, man, these are good questions. I'm just trying to think of how to describe it. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's okay. Great question, Adam. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, so here's I, the way I try to describe it. Let's say somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, do you want to fight? Like your brain has the ability to go, is this guy a threat? Like, I don't think this guy's a threat. Like he's smaller than me. Sure. Mm -hmm. He doesn't look very tough. I think I'm, you know, I, I'll be fine. I don't feel threatened because he's smaller than me. And so I'd be like, yeah. ah, you know, I'm good. And the guy would say, Hey, let's fight. You know, I'm going to beat you up. And you go, nah. and you're just in no way intimidated or scared. You don't go into fight or flight. Right. But now imagine your body is constantly in fight or flight mode constantly. So a little old woman cut me off at the grocery store. I took that as a fight, right? And so I'm mm -hmm. suddenly very aggressive and ready to throw this poor old lady through a window because she cut me off at the grocery store. Yeah. A guy looks at me just, what's that guy doing? He looks at me and I'm thinking, well, that guy wants to fight me. And, and I would go into full fight or flight. Right. And so that wow. whole, yeah. I'm not in control. I don't get to decide. My body's like, oh, you're going to get in a fight. And, I, and I, there'd be times I'm by myself and my body would go, let's fight. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, why am I so angry and so aggressive for no reason? Um, and so that's the best description I can give. I hope that helps. It, it does. So, so for you now with, with PTSD, would you say it's in remission or does it still come back at, at times, but further? further between or, or, or where are you at now with this? So I did a treatment called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's basically yeah. helping to reprogram your brain to understand what's a fight and what isn't. Um, and so the beauty is I, I am much more relaxed. I work downtown again. I went back downtown. I don't work at the same station, but I'm downtown. I interact with homeless. Sometimes I get aggressive. But I have that ability now with my brain to go, is this guy a threat? And I go, no, I'm fine. Yeah. And I yeah. don't overreact. So I don't know about remission. I think treatment has allowed me to kind of regain control of my of my emotions, which has been nice. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I don't I don't I don't think I'd use a remission. I use the word successfully treated. Yeah. With you're, the you're, EMDR, did they have you reprocess that that memory? Oh man. Yeah. And it, it didn't come easy. That was a, that was weeks and weeks of talking about that call and doing eye movement and revisiting it over and over and yeah. over. Um, it took a long time because every time I watched that video, which we can watch here in a short while, yeah, sure, definitely. I, I would immediately just right. And so I would, I would talk about it, talk my way through it. Why was I so upset about it? Why, you know, what made me so angry yeah. and, and just, over and over and over and over until I could feel the the stress kind of walk away. And then I could watch the video and have no reaction. I could talk about wow. it and not react. Um, but that took a lot of treatment to get yeah. to that point. Yeah. An ongoing thing that you still have to do probably to this day. Cause I remember there was something that you said when I heard you speak that if you have another traumatic experience or something that you think you would deem 
uh, problematic that would kind of affect you, you're straight into getting EMDR again. You're like right into it. Let's get this memory moved over. Let's deal with this thing right EMDR away. EMDR is super cool. Yeah. Oh, you know about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So you guys have done it or how do you know about it? Um, I, I tried it actually. Um, I tried it to, um, and, and, and I tried it to tr- uh, deal with, uh, childhood trauma, um, especially related to bullying. Um, and I couldn't, uh, it didn't, it, I couldn't get into it. Um, I believed in it. I have friends that were super successful with it. And for whatever reason I was two in my head and they said, don't worry if you're two in your head, we'll get it. And I just wouldn't click for me. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I've heard I've that story. Hip- I'm bummed. I've been hypnotized. I've been hypnotized and quacks like a duck on stage. But for whatever reason, <laughs> that, yep. I couldn't click into that. And I was I was bummed about it. So I'm, I'm jealous. I, I It's funny. The first time they talked about it, I was like, are you trying to hypnotize me? And I remember just going, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing this, man. I'm gonna, And I said, I said it, it was funny. I told the guy, I'm like, are you going to try to make me quack like a duck? Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> what games are you playing, buddy? I'm not falling yeah. for it. <laughs> what magic trick are you trying to pull yeah, on me? Exactly. Right now. Like so Ben, uh, so back to that day. Yeah. What did that day start like for you? You came on shift, normal checkouts, all that stuff. And for people that don't know, just kind of walk everybody through like how your day normally starts at the firehouse. Yeah. So our shifts are 24 hours long. We start at 8 a.m. and we go to 8 a.m. the next day. Uh, Our culture is we try to show up early, about an hour early, 7 to 7.30. And the idea is if a call comes in at, say, 7.15 in the morning, the guy going home gets to go home on time, right? And so you come in and you immediately jump on the rig and take that call for him. So we come in an hour early and then that time is our time to check all of our equipment um, and make sure everything is functioning because there is zero excuse for why you'd want to pull up on somebody who's sick or injured and you don't have the necessary equipment or it's not maintained properly. So, you know, firefighters are, are very aware of how our equipment works and what should be there and what shouldn't. So, you know, checking my equipment and then I have it all checked and ready to go by 8 a.m. so that now the our morning tones go off. It's time for our morning meeting at 8 a.m. But I know that all my gear is is ready to go. Um, so we sit down at 8 a.m. Uh, my station, Station 4 downtown by Petco Park, is a double house. So there's two crews. We have Engine 4, and then we had, at the time, it's called Rescue 4, which is our heavy rescue rig. Um, and the heavy rescue rig is one of the best. I mean, it's got to be the best job uh, on the yeah. fire department because we only go to the most intense gnarly uh accidents problems um that anyone can get themselves into and we go anywhere in the city and sometimes somewhere in the county so uh we we rotate the crews there everyone is qualified to work on heavy rescue and we rotate shifts um the engine you just get your butt kicked you run so many calls and it's just painful they're all medical aids and it's just Whew, there's a lot of them. Uh, average 25 to 30 calls in a 24-hour time. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's oh, it's, insane, man. It's insane. It's brutal. So it was my turn to be on the engine. Um, I checked off the gear. We have a morning meeting. And I think almost immediately, by like 8.15, we had our first medical aid at the trolley stop, which is where I was almost murdered later in the day. Um, and so then, you know, we're running calls. We all pitch in 10 bucks during the day. Uh, and the rescue, because they run fewer calls, they cook. So, you know, their job was to go shop, <clears throat> excuse me, get lunch ready, get dinner ready. So we went and worked out for the morning from like nine to 10. 
and then we came back, showered, um, you know, just kind of enjoying our day. We know it's going to be a busy day. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2015. So um, <laughs> I know. We're yeah, right there. we're right there. Yesterday. Oh, wow. yesterday. You're you didn't, from yesterday. You didn't, we didn't, didn't even plan this. <laughs> I know. No, we didn't. We should have actually. So, yeah, yeah. six years ago, um, almost to the day. So, uh, you know, the rescue came back. We were cooking lunch. Um, I was helping out. Got another call to the trolley stop uh, for the second time that day. So, you know, come back, eat lunch, clean up, take a nap if we have time. I think we ended up running like five or six more calls. So, you know, it's a pretty consistent day. Not a lot of downtime. Um, and it's fully expected. I have a great crew. We got along great. We all made light of our day, you know, so we always kept it light. We tease each other and uh, make fun of patients and, you know, just making fun of everything just to keep the day light. Cause we know we're just going to run calls all day. So then 4 PM comes around and, uh, and this call at the trolley stops, our third time at the trolley stop, our 10th call of the shift. And it changed my life forever. So you guys want to see the video? Hey everyone. We normally, don't do this. But at this point in the podcast, Ben was able to take the time and show us uh, screen by screen what happened when he was stabbed, as well as showed us the video of, of it happening. So it wouldn't make sense for you to listen to him sh showing a video. So we put that on Instagram, right, Ryan? Yeah, we did. It's on Raising Dad's Pod on Instagram. And we have the video on there with everything that we talked about, um, about what happened and him walking us through it on there. Yes. So if you want to pause this episode, head over to the Instagram and watch that, uh, do so follow us while you're there. Um, also can Ryan, can you give like people who don't want to do that? Can you give like a, a 30 second rundown of what, what transpired? Yeah, absolutely. So while Ben was talking to the patient that he was on, who was drunk, uh, the bystander was getting irritated and one of the firefighters, a captain on the call, was trying to get the, that bystander away who's getting very aggravated. It ended up being a little bit of a shoving match and then basically all hell broke loose. A fight broke out. Um, at one point, Ben Vernon and the attacker were stuck on the other side of a trolley railing. And that's when the attacker pulled out a knife and stabbed Ben Vernon three times and even tried to stab him in the head. And it took... Ben, a few moments to even realize what had happened and also that his partner at the same time was also stabbed. Yeah, what's crazy is he said that this guy learned professional prison knife fighting, yeah. which is when you get in super close to your attacker and uh, you try, it's, it's what they learned on how to stab prison guards. And so you mm -hmm. try and get them uh, under where the vest would be, in the neck. And so at first, his other firefighters didn't even know who's being stabbed they just thought they were fighting because it was in that close proximity i, I super recommend you go and watch the clip uh it, it's not gory if you're squeamish no. but it definitely is intense definitely uh, definitely listen to the rest of of the interview though yeah listen to the rest of the interview and we pick up right back after the videos uh done being shared with us so enjoy the rest I, I told and I told my wife that the three seconds she spends with me was intense. You know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> How? I, 
I also stabbed her five times in those three. Like, yeah. One, two, three, four, five. I'm out. And it's You're over. Done. It's over quick. Yeah. What happened? And then she says, all hell's broken loose. And I just lay on the ground like this. That's that's the full uh so you guys Sequence can share that share that experience together. We have a lot you, in common, brothers. So your yeah. wife has your wife has PTSD. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. post traumatic <laughs> sex disorder. Yeah, <laughs> man. Uh, don't so show her this podcast, man. Ben, so that that experience. So I've seen that I've seen that video before, obviously, but mm. it doesn't ever uh, fail to yeah. surprise me. Is How... Stabby is Stabby in jail? Prison twenty four years. Prison twenty four six months. Yeah. Two counts of attempted murder. So yeah. wow! Thank God, you know, thank God he yeah. went away, and thank God nobody was killed. But obviously, you guys carry uh, this experience with you along the way um, for the rest of your lives. And I think it's awesome what you're doing to talk about PTSD um, and speak around the nation and the world. Um, but you know, I'm wondering, prior to this incident, do you think you can recall any specific times that you? maybe got some PTSD, you just didn't recognize it? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, being in the fire service, the sheer volume of uh, violence that we see, the um, death and mayhem. And, you know, to us, it's just so normal. Uh, but I know, Ryan, you, mm -hmm. if you've ever been in a room with a bunch of people who are not first responders, first of all, they don't understand our sense of humor. And, and you know, the number of dead bodies they've seen is, like between all of them, you know, 10 people in a room, but they've yeah. combined seen one and you're like, I saw eight yesterday. Like what is happening? So, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so the, uh, I, as I was learning through the mental health process, um, I was, I was probably on my way toward PTSD anyway, because I didn't have any healthy coping mechanisms. Um, you know, if I saw a dead kid, uh, it would bother me. I wouldn't, talk about it i wouldn't tell anybody i certainly didn't want to come home and share that with my family um you know i wouldn't cry i would just swallow it down uh yeah common if, yeah and then if i had nightmares you know drinking is a great way to numb and just mm -hmm. help and i thought well if i drink it helps me sleep which as i've learned all about sleep now alcohol doesn't help you sleep at all um and so you know i i was i had very unhealthy coping mechanisms and then a lifetime of this career you know, I think eventually I probably would have cracked. So yeah, I'm actually very grateful for the stabbing because it, it helped me learn more about mental health. And as you said, you know, EMDR is a great treatment for it. And so now when I do run on a dead child, first of all, I share it, you know, I tell people, Hey, this happened. It bothered me, you know, please give me some space or, you know, can I talk about it? I have people now that I go to, and then if it's, you know, if I'm having nightmares or if it's really sticking to me, I'll go to therapy and do EMDR and kind of offload it. Um, and so I really feel like I have an ace up my sleeve that other first responders don't because a lot of people don't know about EMDR. Um, we don't talk about it in the fire service. It's not part of our training. Um, so that's one of the things when I talk all over the country, I make sure I mention EMDR, find a therapist, ask about it, you know, use it. It's great. Um, and Adam, I'm so bummed you didn't have a good experience with it. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not anti. I, I'm into it still. I'm just. Yeah, didn't hit. It just for me. didn't work for you. I know. Yeah. Oh, I hate, yeah. I hate to hear that. Well, I, I wonder um, why. Why do you think? Uh, and maybe we can relate this back to maybe the maybe some of the experiences you had while you were growing up, and what you know. We'll talk a little bit more about 
you know, your background prior to this whole incident, prior to the fire service. But why do you think it is that people fail to or they're they're unwilling to accept help when there's a clearly traumatic experience that they've they've gone through? I can I can name hundreds probably that I've experienced that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't gone in and and tried to get help for or try to at least get therapy for to like talk through it. And that's actually is a more recent thing. I'm more regularly trying to go and trying to offload some of those feelings from things that I've gone through. Uh, probably more because they've come out from personal experiences, like personal trauma from people I know who've gone through a terrible experience or they've been in an accident or something like that. And it's weird how those, all those past traumas that you've seen didn't seem to bother me before it happened to somebody I was really close to. And then I would just break down and like cry you know, based on seeing my friend in that similar situation, it made me realize that I think I'm holding a lot more, you know, than, than I was even aware of. So why do you think people are unwilling to go accept that help right away? I think it's, I'm going to blame sheer lack of training. Um, I, I got zero, well, I, I got 12 PowerPoint slides on mental health at the start of my career. So my very first day of EMT school, and I'm an EMT instructor now, I teach EMT, and mental health is taught on the first day, it's 12 slides. Yeah. And as I'm teaching these 12 slides, I'm like, oh my God, this is all you're ever gonna get. And Ryan, you remember the first day of EMT, you want blood, guts, and gore, right? Mm -hmm. You want violence, You, because you want to use your skills. And so you're excited. And if someone's like, there's a dead body in that room, you're like pushing past everybody to see it, you know, because it's mm -hmm. it's different and you wanna, test your skills. So it's a lack of training because I, those 12 slides on the first day of class, and then you don't ever get them again. Right. And you go to medic school and you go to the fire Academy and you take specialty classes on how to save people in water or how to ventilate a high rise or how to cut somebody out of a car, right. All these crazy skills that we've learned how to fight wildland fire. There's nothing on how to talk to the family who lost a kid. There's nothing on, you know, how to deal with it yourself. And yeah. Um, so it's lack of training is what I'm going to chalk up. The, yeah. Cause all of that stuff that you mentioned is uh, things that I learned on the job, either in my internship. I remember the first time talking to a family that lost somebody and uh, we had to pronounce them. The training I got was by my preceptor saying, shadow me while I talk to the family and let them know that their loved one is no longer, you know, they're no longer here. They've passed. And that was the extent of our training. It's just experience based. And, you know, I don't even until you've gone through it yourself, because I think you can relate more when you've gone through personal trauma to actually talk to somebody. But it is kind of incredible now looking back on it, that that's all we really got. It is. It is. And so, again, something we could try to fix and educate is just, you know, there, there should be a class that you can take that says, all right, this is let's do all these different scenarios and role play on how to talk to a family member. Because mm -hmm. my first experience was not with a preceptor and I did <laughs> not do a good job. This lady came up to me and asked me, I was at a, uh, I was at a party for firefighters and I'm drinking a beer with a, a, my partner, you know, we're hanging out and this lady came up she goes, Oh, you guys are firefighters. She goes, my friend's a firefighter and her name is, you know, Cindy. Mm -hmm. And she goes, how's Cindy doing? And I went, Cindy killed herself. Jeez. <laughs> and the lady just was like turned pale and was shocked yeah. and walked away. And I just kept drinking my beer and my partner was like, dude. And I was like, what? And he's like, 
that's not how you do that. And yeah, I was like, that's not how you do that. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, what should I have said? He goes, how about, I'm so sorry to tell you this, man, but, you know, she completed suicide. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll try that next time. Right? Like, yeah. that was my... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. That's... So, yeah. Sad. But... Man. So, so back, uh, so back before, before you ever got into the fire service, what, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I grew up in LA, Santa Clarita by Magic Mountain. Uh, my parents are still alive, both happily married still to this day, a uh, little sister and older brother. Um, was in LA, you know, it came time to go to college. So I was shopping for colleges and I visited UC San Diego, uh, in April. It was the most gorgeous place I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, I knew immediately, I'm like, I'm going to school here and I'm probably going to live here forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I did, I came down to school and, and went to UCSD and never went back. Um, my parents are now retired. They moved to Mesa, Arizona. My dad is a fire chaplain. Hmm. Uh, he, he became a fire chaplain after I joined the fire service. So oh, wow. that was kind of a cool, he, he jokes that he's the only dad he, dad who's followed his son into his career yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so i have a great relationship with them um i i grew up in a really loving home and um you know it's just my dad's a preacher my mom's a teacher so it was public service was was very uh important to them and instilled in me on uh, just helping you know noble cause helping the world be a better place yeah um and i kind of stumbled into it like i said you know ran into a buddy of mine that told me about it and i was like that's it. It's public service and there's danger involved. Like I'm in. So, yeah, I'm yeah. in. Yeah. I am was, in. Was it a, uh, was it a strict household growing up? Yeah, it was. I mean, my dad was uh, from Texas, the South and in the military. So yeah, it was, it was strict. I mean, there were definitely rules. Um, you know, my, my dad was pretty good. He, he didn't, there were spankings, but not, you know, beatings. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I learned, I learned the rules, uh, you know, <laughs> senior year in high school, I challenged them a bit. I was ready to leave the nest. And so we butted heads, but I think that's the only time my dad and I ever never saw eye to eye was my senior year of high school. Cause I just wanted out, you know, it was rebellious, yeah. but what were the, what were the rules you didn't want to follow? Well, uh, <laughs> so, you know, curfew, that's a big one. Um, taking care of my little sister and driving her wherever she wanted to go and, I didn't like yeah. that. Uh, school, I always had really good grades. Um, but my senior year, my grades started to slack because I just, I'd already been accepted to school and, you know, didn't care about education anymore. I started ditching a lot. Uh, so that led to some problems, but pretty mild, yeah. you know, not a lot. I drank a little bit of alcohol, uh, got to college, a lot of alcohol. Turned it on. Turned <laughs> it up a notch. But, you know, I was, a, I was a pretty good kid and I had a pretty good household. And, and so I didn't, you know, I wasn't, yeah. you know, I'm sure you've you guys have probably interviewed people who've been through a lot worse. So, yeah, you know, we've, we've heard all, all sides of the spectrum from yeah. people who, you know, were like, nah, my parents are great. And we got along every single day to my dad tried to kill me when I was seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You're like, okay. His wow. name was Stabby Senior. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Adverse childhood experiences, the ACE score. It is amazing the, the how that molds you, you know, your adverse childhood experiences. So, it's weird. And I, I don't know where that comes from, you know, really, because, you know, that type A personality that the this job kind of is perfect for. 
I don't, I don't know. I can't think about, you know, where I got that from. I don't know. I mean, I can't say my dad was specifically a very macho guy in the sense of, you know, it was like, be a man, swallow your pride. Any of that. I don't, I don't remember that ever being a thing, but it just, it seems like that personality trait just developed in me. Do you, do you feel like that kind of was the same for you? Same way. My dad never told me to suck it up buttercup. Uh, you know, he never told me to take it like a man. He never said that. Uh, and I, but I only saw my dad cry once in my entire life. Uh, and that's when his mother died. Uh, and I was little, and I remember my dad crying. I was like, Whoa, you know? Yeah. Uh, so my dad didn't, I mean, my dad hugged and he wasn't afraid to say, I love you. So, you know, there was that, but never saw him cry. Um, you know, and he, I never saw him get emotional or angry or throw things, you know, he was very even keel. Um, and so I, I like to think I have some of that character trait, but yeah, I don't know where I got the drive to do this job and to, to just type a personality, like, you know, be the best that I could be and take everything dangerous. I wanted to do, you know, I joined yeah. the hazmat team so I could wear the level a suits and go into clouds of death. And then the technical rescue team. So I could hang off a cliff and capture somebody or, you know, dive into the water to save them. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I love it and I still love it, but yeah, I don't know where that drive came from, but did uh, this is jumping around so much, but did you okay. ever consider not to, not going back to the fire department after being stabbed? Well, when I was in the middle of PTSD, uh, so, you know, I, nobody told me it was going to happen. I, uh, I got stabbed. I'm in the hospital. They're pumping me full of pain meds. And my thought was as soon as they had to give me a chest tube. So they had to shove a tube into my chest to reinflate my lung. And that tube had to stay there for three days. And the doctor told me, look, we're going to pull this tube. We're going to stitch you up. We're going to send you home in about two, three weeks. We're going to pull those stitches and then you're going to be good to go. And I'm thinking, perfect. Like get back to work. I missed three weeks, right? No big deal. Mm -hmm. I have a great story to tell. It's going to be awesome. Um, And so I spent two weeks at home taking the pain meds, like getting ready to go back to work. At some point, though, and, and first responders know that opiates are very, very, very addicting. I mean, the whole country knows, but first responders witness it. Yeah. And so I was start. I could tell I'm like, man, I'm starting to crave this stuff. Like, I don't want this. So I quit the pain meds. And that's I, I didn't know this, but the pain meds were kind of suppressing my subconscious. Mm. That's when the nightmare started. So I was off the, the opiates. And then I was having these horrific nightmares where I was fighting Stabby in my sleep and I would murder him. And I mean, he was stabbing me and I was biting him. And I mean, it was just the most graphic, realistic. I could feel, taste, smell. Uh, and I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming, thrashing around. And of course, my poor wife was like, what the hell? Um, and it was when those nightmares started that I'm like, whoa, like this is not normal. You know, I am not okay. Uh, yeah. Man, I, uh-oh. But then I remember thinking, well, okay, this will pass. Right. And so then a week, two weeks, nightmares every night, fighting, screaming, scratching, waking up, tasting blood in my mouth. And it was at that point, I'm like, "Uh Oh, like I can't go back to work yet. If I go back to work, I'm going to kill somebody. Right. I mean, I'm going to yeah. run on anyone that even looks at me sideways. And this is where I'm shopping and the little old lady cuts me off. Right. And I'm ready to throw an old lady through a window. And I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble, right? I, I can't be a firefighter if I'm like this. And so there was doubt in my mind of if I was going to be able to return. I always wanted to return, 
but I doubted I would be able to do it. And so it wasn't until I started getting really good help and doing EMDR and my emotions were finally under control. My first thought was, okay, I'm ready. Let's go back to work. Um, so yeah, there, there was a bit of doubt, but, but I'm glad that I was able to find good treatment, get back to normal and get back in there. So how did you get from, how did you decide to get help? Like how did help happen for you? Great question. So <laughs> I didn't know how to get help. I didn't know where to start. And this again goes back to training for first responders. No one ever told me like, hey, if you have problems, here's the path. So like many people all over the country, all over the world, uh, as I've shared my story, they share their story with me. It's the exact same story. It's people realize, oh man, I'm, I might need professional help. And then you go on this horrible journey, right? So first thing is I called the city and I said, I need help. And they go, no problem. And they sent me a doctor whose specialty was traffic accidents. <laughs> so people who get in traffic accidents have a hard time getting back behind the wheel. I didn't even know that was a thing, but okay. <laughs> I meet this guy and I go, hey, I need your help. And he goes, okay. He goes, I've never worked with a firefighter before. I'm like, great. I've never worked with a therapist before. He goes, I specialize in car accident victims. I'm like, I specialize in car accident victims. This is great. <laughs> this is all, this is going to be the perfect relationship. This is going to be perfect. Yes. And he goes, okay, what's wrong? And I said, well, let me just show you the video. And I show him the video and he goes, oh my God, that guy tried to murder you. And I go, yeah. And I'm having nightmares where I eat this guy's face in my sleep. And this guy suddenly got very scared of me. And he was like, uh, and I, I missed an opportunity, Ryan. I should have been like, you look tasty, but yeah, you know, just like, <laughs> but I was so desperate for help. He goes, Hey man, I go, I'm having nightmares. I eat this guy in my sleep. And he goes, if you're having nightmares, the best thing to do is to lay off the caffeine. And I knew immediately I'm like, you're an idiot, right? Like, yeah. what? Like I've, I don't have that degree on my wall, but I'm pretty sure that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> this isn't working. And so I, I called the city back. And I'm like, help. Like I need somebody else. And I go, no problem. And the next guy goes, he goes, Hey, if you're feeling stressed at work, just don't go on any calls. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not an option, right? You can't just genius. If you ask me, right. <laughs> Believe me, if I could get my department I'm to buy tired. off on that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that we don't want to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that sounds stressful. We're out. Click. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, a child drowned in a pool? Ew, no. Yeah. Click. So I kept trying. And this is where, you know, if I could relate this to dads teaching their sons resiliency, you know, constantly pushing to find a solution. And I think that if I could give my dad credit for anything, it was. You know, he didn't, he, he would help me along the way, but he'd always make sure that I was doing most of the work. And then if I failed, it's, you're not a failure. It's you failed. So how do we fix it? Right. What's the next thing we can do to, to make it work the next time. And he was very good about that. And so that's just, my mindset was there has to be a solution. There has to be a fix. I just haven't found the right guy yet. Right. Instead of giving up or going, well, all therapy stupid. I'm out. Um, yeah. I just kept remember thinking, there's got to be a fix to this. I can fix this. So I kept looking. Eventually, a buddy of mine referred me to a therapist who specializes in working with police. And I met this guy in his lobby. We shake hands. 
And he goes, hey, man, you sounded bad on the phone. Why are you here? And I said, well, let me show you the video. I show him the video. And he asked me, he goes, how are your nightmares? And I will never forget that feeling of like, oh, yes, I found yeah. the right guy. I found yeah. him. Kind of like the Goldilocks and, you know, porridge is too cold, porridge is too hot. Yeah. That's yeah. right. This guy, I was like, yes, I found the right guy. And so from then on, um, he brought me into his office and, and the therapy started and, and it took him a couple months to tweak me and get me back to work, EMDR and, um, you know, dealing with this call. But at some point I remember feeling so good. I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to go back to work. And he goes, okay, is there anything else you want to work on? And I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, let me talk about these five other calls that have always bothered me. And he goes, all right, well, let's EMDR those two. And, and I just remember leaving his office feeling better than like my first day on the fire floor, right? The very first day as a wow. firefighter, I felt stronger and more resilient and more mentally tough than I did on day one. And I, I will never forget that feeling of like, not only am I ready to go back to work, I'm ready to go back to work with a vengeance. Like I, I am fired up, like, let's do this. And then for me, everywhere I'd go to work, I would tell everyone that I worked with, Hey, have you heard of EMDR? You got to try this thing. Um, and so that to me, um, fathers teaching their sons resilience, the ability to fail and just get back up, try again. Right. And so yeah. that I think saved my life because it just, I just kept going, you know, kept trying to find a doctor, kept trying to find a solution. Um, so that. I, I wonder if that could piggyback into some other lessons too, like parents teaching their kids about therapy and the benefits of it, because, you know, it doesn't have to be getting stabbed. It doesn't have to be being in a bad car accident. It really could just be like what Adam's talking about. I mean, you don't know what kind of childhood trauma people are going through. And I think recognizing that in your kids and, you know, moving forward through life by being in tune with, and I mean, especially someone like you, you know, I mean, someone who's gone through it, you know, I think I can relate on a much smaller level, someone who's experienced some trauma, but, you know, relating to that and seeing a way to kind of kind of push them in the direction of like, Hey, if you know, these things are bothering you, don't bury them down deep. Don't, don't bury those things and don't cover them with alcohol. I mean, right. you know, I know that's everybody's go-to solution. How many times have you heard that story of oh. someone experienced PTSD and they've just buried it in alcohol? Yeah. yeah. Or other harder drugs, but yeah, yeah, that one. And I don't know how much time we have left. I don't want to take up all your guys' time. Um, well, this is a six-hour podcast. So, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, all right. Yeah, we just started. I, I hope I'm actually kind of bummed at how fast the uh, stabbing lasted. So we have a lot of time. If <laughs> I was over so quick, we have to keep going. Yeah. Um, so this event, four of us, right? There was a my partner who got stabbed, my captain, my engineer, all four of us there, all standing within three feet of each other when this event happened. I went and got therapy and, and got better my partner who I love to death um, has tried to tough it out. Uh, he would probably tell you he's okay, but I've noticed he and I did a lot of teaching in the Academy. We taught a lot of extra classes. We did a lot of extracurricular activities. We were on a lot of special teams together. He doesn't do a lot of that anymore. And he mm -hmm. transferred to a very quiet fire station. He just kind of does his thing and he's kind of disappeared. Uh, my captain took it very hard that his actions of pushing that guy over got us stabbed. And despite me telling him, Hey man, that's not your fault, you know, at all. 
Uh, he started drinking heavily. He eventually got into an altercation with his girlfriend and he hit her and he was arrested on domestic violence charges. So a couple of years after this incident, I'm back in court testifying on behalf of my captain, trying to convince this judge, Man. please don't give him a felony. Please make this a misdemeanor, which is hard because we've run on a lot of domestic violent patients. Right. Yeah, and so I'm, yeah. I'm on that fence of like, oh, but also I'm thinking, I know exactly what's causing this. Right. Yeah. This is this is drinking because of this incident. And the judge was very kind. He listened. He smiled. And then he convicted him of a felony anyway. So my captain lost his job. He's five years probation. He wears an ankle bracelet. All because he didn't get the help that he needed. Yeah. Um, right. And so you just I mean, four people standing three feet apart and three very different outcomes because of therapy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You know, it's funny you say that. I didn't think about it till now. My dad was a preacher. People came to him all the time with their problems. And I would be there. You know, I would see that. And so it's funny not till talking to you guys that I realized that I kind of, I think that's why I kept looking for help because I'm thinking, yeah, talk therapy works. I've seen people do it. Um, and so that's funny that that was kind of taught by him without having to say a word. Right. He was the therapist that people came to. Kind of led by example, it sounds like. Led by example. Yeah. Good, right. Good. Good point. Yeah. I'll have to call him and thank him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Always call your dad. That's always, yeah. you know, that's, that's, there's nothing bad about that. Um, I kind of well, have a, I kind of have a philosophical question for you just because when I think of, you know, all the turmoil that goes on in the world and things like, you've experienced do you ever think about is is the good in people kind of corrupted by evil in their lives or do you think that some people are just destined to be like that like what what have you ever thought about like what led people to go into it i mean that guy was literally just talking you know and do you ever think about like what leads these people to just randomly stab you know two people on a street corner for a call that he wasn't even involved in. Uh, so I can tell you what therapy has given me the gift of compassion, forgiveness, gratefulness. Um, and those are words I didn't use regularly before this incident. Uh, certainly while I was going through PTSD, I can tell you that I hated that guy and all I wanted was revenge. And I had fantasies where I would get to go to prison and they would lock us in a cage and the two of us would each have a knife. I'd have a knife this time. Yeah. And I don't care how it ended. One of us was walking out and that's all I wanted was revenge. Um, talking with the therapist, you know, who, who works with cops. Um, one of the things that I really struggled with EMDR helped me with PTSD. It was, it was hours and hours on the couch, relearning compassion. Um, and to think of what that guy's life was like that would lead him to be homeless, angry, bitter. And the fact that he wanted to help somebody. And when he felt he was rebuffed, he would throw a fight, pull a knife and start killing people. Right. So yeah, that guy, I feel sorry for now, you know, that, and, and I actually got to learn about his life in the trial because the defense attorney was going after us. And the prosecutor was going after him. Yeah. Um, and that is a whole new experience for first responders is being in trial and having your reputation 
be brought up, right? Like, I mean, that was everything's rough. called into question. Everything is called, and they're going after you. You know, the defense attorney is trying to do his job. I mean, that's literally every firefighter's worst nightmare. Pa- yes. Paramedic EMT. That's everybody's worst nightmare. Yes. Have you ever been convicted? Have you ever, you know, touched a woman's boob? I, I mean, just, just mm-hmm. going after me. And luckily, my reputation was solid. Uh, my captain's wasn't, and he got torn apart in court. Um, but listening to the prosecutor, you know, this guy, when I saw him, he had a lazy eye, like one eye was partially closed. Uh, and it turned out he had been in a fight with cops when he was 12. And that was an injury when he was 12. Uh, he had been to prison as a felon for attacking a cop or a security guard in Oakland. And it spent time in prison. That's where he learned to knife fight. Mm. So this guy had a long history of not working well with authority. Right. And of course, realizing that I show up in my fire t-shirt, I'm authority. Now I I had the mistake of going, well, I'm a firefighter. I'm the good guy. Everybody knows that. But this guy, I mean, his whole life since he was a little kid has, has been battling authority. Um, And that, you know, learning that and just feeling compassion for him and feeling bad for him and realizing that, you know, all of these bad things happening to him has led him to be bitter and angry. So yeah. in, in my opinion, to answer your question, I believe everyone is, is inherently good. They, they want to be good people. Um, and it's just life. And again, going back to ACE, that adverse childhood experiences that really forms who you are having a dad, you know, or, or any role model to raise you when you're little can be the difference between prison and you know, being a guard. Um, yeah. I actually saw a TED talk on that, that, you know, they, they followed kids in underprivileged neighborhoods through their whole life. And all of them had started in the same place, right? All of them started um, in, in disadvantaged neighborhoods. The thing that separated people that were drugs, prison, um, the bad versus career oriented family and good was that at some point when they were young, they had a role model that believed in them and and just said i believe in you i believe you can do this and they all all those people made it out of of those adverse experiences so yeah learning that i look at stabby um his real name's ryan i look at ryan and i feel damn bad it for him. And I, I know i know I, I twitched a little when i saw your name yeah um, <laughs> but PTS is fine but can we call you something else yeah <laughs> no but i feel bad for ryan i think that guy just didn't have a role model when he was young and he wasn't yeah. raised by you know people that loved him and yeah we butted heads on june 24 2015 man you got anything else <laughs> <laughs> you're just frozen <laughs> ryan changed his name to stabby on yeah. his uh <laughs> Oh, you changed my name to Stabby. God damn it. Yeah, that's that's what I was doing. <laughs> well, I think well, that Adam, you did that. Yeah. You did yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that is messed up, man. You guys are having a heart to heart. I'm like that's awesome. Well, it's uh we I have to get one over on Ryan sometimes because I have a two-year-old son and he thinks that being a firefighter is the coolest job in the world. And I work on my computer and I'm like, (laughs) well, I I am an entrepreneur and I have a company and this company provides for your family. And he's like, 
Uncle Ryan's cooler than me. I get it. So if I can get Ryan back ever, I have to. I have to take my opportunity. He nailed that one, man. He nailed it. That's funny. Um, Ben did did a couple things. We'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining us, though. Like this, like thank you, man. Ah, I loved this hour of my life. So so thank you. Yeah. Um. Did uh did your dad have any good dad jokes growing up, or do you have a favorite dad joke? Well. I saw I saw that and I he's had so many and they're all so cringeworthy. Uh, <laughs> but the one that I the only one I could come to mind is I was a, I was little and I was telling my dad I was like dad I, you know at recess I ran and I ran and I ran and he goes oh you, you must be from Iran and I just remember <laughs> like, that stopped me cold and I remember going I was like six and I was like yeah, that is so stupid so. You know, just God, that dad joke was horrible. I was like, uh, I mean, at six, I was like, that's no. What? You're like, that's uh, dumb, dad. That's dumb. Don't. Please don't meet yeah, any of my exactly. friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'm for yeah. sure going to use that. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I might have to use that one later. God, God that dad joke was terrible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I so did ben, the, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I did the other day to my daughter. She was like, dad, I'm hungry. I go, Hi, hungry. Hi, dad. (laughs) Which is like, I don't know. It's crazy. Like, do you have kids, Ben? I don't. I don't. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, all of a sudden, all these things you hear in your life come back to you. Like, we were on a plane earlier today, and she's like, I'm thirsty. And I was like, swallow your spit. And I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> like, I have n- I've never said that before. I don't know when that was said to me, but like all these things just come out. It's because it's your you chance to use them. It's like yeah. it's like your chance to embarrass your kid. You know, it's like yeah. I can't wait for those moments to m- make a dumb joke or say something stupid just to embarrass her for no yeah. reason. I bet you in that closet right behind Adam is a bowling shirt somewhere in there. (laughs) (laughs) It comes with your dad. It just shows. It comes with being a dad. Yeah. I didn't order that. Where's that? Yeah. Yeah. I would stand up and get it, but then you guys would see the fact I'm really not wearing pants, and so yeah, we're gonna stay in your seat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um. All right, Ben. And the last question is a surprise question for you. Oh boy. Um. Which is, uh, all of our guests get to name their own episode of the podcast. So oh, okay. what would you what would you like to name today's episode? Resilience. Resilience, I like it. Resilience. That's fantastic. that's perfect. That's fantastic. Yeah. Guys, this was fun. Well, that was the episode with Ben Vernon. I hope everyone got a little insight on what people deal with when they have post traumatic stress disorder and how they can find help. Can we also take a moment? to acknowledge that I asked him an amazing question. Yes, you did. An amazing question. Some might call me the Oprah Winfrey of interviews. Some have definitely never called you that. Um, (laughs) But I would say that this interview was great because I liked how we were able to kind of catch Ben off guard in some way and get him to open up more than I think he planned. Totally. It was a great interview. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're not subscribed yet, please subscribe. Can we tell them who's on next week? Oh, we have to. So next week is Howard Wozden. Howard Wozden is a New York Times bestselling author. He is also a former SEAL Team 6 sniper. And Howard shares his life story, his difficult life story, I should say, and what uh, made him kind of pursue 
I guess, difficult things in life. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Raising Dads. Um, we will have more t-shirts for sale soon. We sold out of the first, <laughs> the 10 first million? batch. 10 million. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was closer to 100, but okay. uh, 100 million. I mean, 100 million. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The first batch of Raising Dads shirts are gone. We will have more in stock soon. And we really appreciate you guys listening. Please like, subscribe, please leave a review, and we appreciate you. Mom's mad. So for daddy. What the heck? Thanks for listening. Thank you, bye. Subscribe and download. Subscribe and download. Hey, poopy poop. Raising dad.